Okay, good talk. We're now beginning Shemot, Sunday's portion. And these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each man, and his household came. The Rashi says that we already counted them. We counted them in their lifetime when they were entering Egypt. So why are we counting them now after they passed away? And Rashi says to make known how precious they are to God. And the Jews are counted by name compared to the stars that it says God brings out and brings in the stars by their names. And so too each Jew. Now we list all the tribes. All of them. We go through the names of all 12 tribes. And all the persons who emerged from Jacob were 70 souls and Joseph was in Egypt. The question is, um, first of all, Joseph and his sons were counted in the 70. The way the verse is saying it, it's like, 70 plus Joseph was in Egypt. And obviously, we know Joseph was in Egypt. So what is this added for? So the verse here is saying this to emphasize the righteousness of Joseph. This same Joseph who tended the flocks of his father is the same Joseph who became the king in Egypt and did not shame. That's actually one of the explanations in the previous portion. Vayechi says that Jacob's best years were those 17 years spent in Egypt. And the question is, in Egypt, in the most immoral, decadent society, it was Jacob's best years? And the obvious answer is, because he was with Joseph. It's not just he was with Joseph. But knowing that Joseph had all these temptations, so powerful, he was so beautiful, so the most immoral, amoral society, and he remained in his purity, in his holiness. He was Joseph the saint. This is what gave Jacob that enormous life for these last 17 years. Of course, we could say, but Egypt is a place of such limitations and barriers. But Jacob transcended them through the Torah study, through the Torah houses that were set up before he even arrived by his son Judah in Egypt to transcend because through Torah, we transcend all limitations. So the limitations of Egypt were transcended by Torah. And when we're transcending the limitation, and we have the joy of seeing our son, Joseph, that we thought dead for 22 years, and we see not only is he alive, but he's alive as we call life, godly life, that gives, that gives Jacob an extra joy, an extra life in Egypt. Joseph died, and all his brothers, and that entire generation. Now remember, until the, as we learned last week, once Jacob died, already the Egyptians tried to begin the enslavement process, subtly, not with coercion. But after the last of Joseph's generation, after the last of the brothers died, who was Levi, that's when the Egyptians came out with full force, coerced enslavement. The children of Israel were fruitful, teeming, increasing, and became strong, very, very much so, and the land became full of them. So Rashi says they would give birth to six children from one pregnancy. As we see here in this verse, there are six expressions of increase. They were fruitful, they teamed, they increased, they became strong, very, very much. So we have these six expressions implying this six-fold pregnancy, which will end with healthy babies. To make the Jews from 70, when they left Egypt, there were three million. And a new king arose over Egypt who did not know of Joseph. So Rashi says there's two explanations. One says literally it was a new king. And one says it was the same king. 
But he made himself not know Joseph. He issued new edicts that would not be edicts from someone who knew Joseph. As Rashi says, he acted as if he did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people, the children of Israel, are more numerous and stronger than we. Come, let us ask wisely to it, lest it become numerous, and it may be that if a war will occur, it too may join our enemies and wage war against us and go up from the land. So the Midrash actually explains, the Rashi will go into this, but actually this desire to destroy the Jews came from the Egyptians, and they put a lot of pressure on Pharaoh to join. But once he joined, he joined very full force. And he's saying here, let's ask wisely, Hava, come, which means we have to prepare ourselves. We have to prepare ourselves for this purpose, to be wise. To be wise meaning we have to think of a way to outsmart God. So obviously we know their God and we know the power of their God, but we know something. We know their God promised he would never again destroy the world with water. That was the promise God made after the flood, which wiped away almost all of mankind besides you know, Noah, his wife, and his three sons and their wives. So let's harm the Jews with water, and then we're safe because God operates measure for measure. If we harm them with water, God has to harm us with water, but he can't. He made a promise. So therefore, hey, we can get away with it. Now, what they didn't realize, of course, is that God's promise was not to destroy the world with water, but God could definitely attack a nation as ultimately, of course, the first of the plagues was changing their water into blood. And it, that nation will go up from the land. So this seems a little strange because if the Egyptians are afraid that the Jews are going to ally themselves with Egypt's enemies, you'd think they'd be very happy for the Jews to leave the land. But what Pharaoh means is we're going to be forced to leave the land, but I don't want to say I'm going to leave. I'm saying they are leaving, but I really mean I'm leaving, which is why um, this would be a tremendous stress. Or another way of understanding it is no, Against our will, the Jews are going to leave because we don't want them to leave because we're making them slaves. We have this huge nation of slaves. We don't want them to leave. Either against our will they're leaving because we want their service, or they're going to overcome and we're going to be forced to leave, which we don't want either. We've got to do something. So they appointed tax collectors over it in order to afflict it with their burden. It built strong cities for Pharaoh, peace from Aram safe. So the it here, notice there's capes and things thrown out. It is the nation. And um, their officials, they appointed tax officials. What do you mean tax officials? What's the tax here? The tax is the work. That they trick the Jews into working very, very, very hard. Like, oh, this is a you know, communal project and you've got to be very nationalistic and patriotic and work really hard to build up Egypt. And even Pharaoh himself is working crazy hard. It was all a fake out. Obviously, Pharaoh wasn't, but we're pretending. And then the Egyptians were really writing down how much the Jews were capable of, and then they forced the Jews afterwards to produce that same amount, which actually is what we're told is how the tribe of Levi didn't have any enslavement during this entire time. Because remember, Levi passed away the last of the brothers, so I guess he had the most influence on his tribe. And therefore, he instilled in them enough sense of separation, and we are not part of nationalistic, patriotic Egyptian culture. When the Egyptians came out with this whole campaign to let's all go, we're all going to work, the children of Levi said, we're not part of that. We're priestly people. We're godly people. We're not going and building up Egypt. But since they never voluntarily joined, 
they were never enslaved. But the rest of the Jews were seduced by this, yes, yes, we're all Egyptians. We've actually seen this in our history many times since, of course. And therefore they became part of this, yes, proud Egyptian workers, and that's how they were put on this tax day by day, less and less Egyptians showed up, and suddenly it's only Jews, and suddenly it's Jews, and the Egyptians now have whips, and the Egyptians are now forcing them to be produce that amount of work in order to afflict it with their burden means the burdens of the Egyptians are now dumping on the Jewish people. That what the Egyptians need to do, they're now forcing by the wit. God forbid the Jews to do. Um, they're building these storage cities. As Uncle says, cities of storehouses, storehouses for grain. And the cities were Pisum and Ramses. Now, obviously, if the cities already exist, then what does it mean they're building them? Rashi explains they existed, but they weren't really fit for the purpose. They weren't strong and fortified. And the Jews had to make them strong and fortified, which we're told was really pointless labor because they were like built on very shaky ground, so they kept on falling apart anyway, which makes what you're doing even more denigrating when you don't even see any, nothing has been happening from your work. This is, of course, all part of the plot to break down the Jews morally, intellectually, emotionally, psychologically as well as with excruciating physical labor. But as much as they would afflict it, so would they increase and burst forth, and they were disgusted because of the children of Israel. So Rashi says that as much as Egyptians would set their heart to afflict the Jews, God was set to increase them. So therefore, they're doing all of this horrific stuff that's just destined to do, and yet the Jewish population is growing and growing. Because God says, as much as you're planning to harm them, I'm already, even before you put the plans in place, I'm already making them more and more and more bountiful. And that's why it says they were disgusted. The Egyptians were disgusted with the Jews. The Jews were like thorns in the Egyptians' eyes. We keep on trying to uproot them, but they keep growing and growing. The Egyptians enslaved the children of Israel with crushing labor. Marash explains this means with hard work that crushes and breaks the body. They embittered their lives with hard work, with mortar and with bricks, and with every labor of the field. All their labor that they performed with them was crushing labor. But this is because, again, their point in all this labor, of course, they didn't mind whatever economic benefit it was for the Jews to be their slaves. But they also, bottom line, want to destroy the Jewish people, and they see that that's not happening. Even though if they just wanted a slave population, they would be happy that they're working them so hard and they're still increasing. That's great, more slaves. But no, their real goal was to destroy us. That goal never changes generation to generation. And therefore, it wasn't enough that they were doing it. So we've got a little bit, even a little more proactive here to destroy the Jewish nation. So the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of the first was Shifra and the name of the second was Pua. So the midwives... Rashi explains, these are people who assist a woman in childbirth. First is Shifra. Shifra is Yocheved. Yocheved is, if you remember, the last of those 70 of Jews that actually entered Egypt. She was born between the walls. We learned about her in two parts years ago. So she's obviously quite old now. Quite old. And um, she was the chief midwife of the Jewish people. She's also the wife of Amram, the spiritual leader of the Jews, and ultimately, though this hasn't happened yet, the mother of Moses. 
the savior of the Jews. So that was who Shifra was. Now, why is she called Shifra? The Shifra means to beautify, and she would they would beautify the child at birth. And she wouldn't just make sure the child came out, but she would wash the child, make the child clean and beautiful. And her main assistant, of course, it wasn't two women for all of the millions of Jews, but these were the heads of the midwives. Her assistant was Pua, and Pua was her daughter, Miriam. And why was she called Pua? Because she was like, Pua, Pua. She would soothe the babies. When the babies would come out, they're crying. They would make those poo poo noises to soothe and calm the baby. So these two were the heads of all the midwives of the Jews. And Pharaoh called them in because he now had another layer of his devious plotting to destroy the Jewish people. And he said, You're assisting the Hebrew woman at childbirth, and you see on the birth stool, if it is a son, you are to kill him. If it's a daughter, she shall live. So you're assisting, you're assisting in childbirth. Here's the stool of the woman in childbirth. And if it's a boy, kill him. Now what was he saying if the boy kill him if the girl live? Because his astrologers had told him that a boy was destined to be born who would save Israel. Of course, that is true. That boy was Moses. But he didn't know the boy was you, a boy. So his goal was to kill all the boys. And if it's a girl... She could live. Um, so we see here, actually, when it says the girl, Techayim really means make her live, which means Pharaoh had a plot against the girls also. The boys kill them. And the girls make them live like Egyptian lives. That's also part of the plot. Either kill them physically or kill them spiritually. That's the plot to destroy the Jewish people. But even though this was the king and he was definitely watching, and it would be very easy to tell if they were listening or not, the midwives feared God. They did not know the king of Egypt spoke to them, and they kept the boys alive. And we see from here the tremendous self-sacrifice in which it's going to continue tomorrow when it was, it was literally because Pharaoh didn't take this, you know, as we say, lying down. He was ready to kill them. It was one of those great miracles that God did not allow Pharaoh to kill Yochevet and Miriam. And he was totally ready to do so because they destroyed his whole grand scheme here. And they were pretending, oh, well, you know, I mean, like he knew they weren't listening to him. And he was quite ready to kill them. But they, 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 they couldn't do this. They feared God more than they feared the sword of Pharaoh. And God responded and blessed them that from them came the priests. So Yochavet, her descendants, and Moses, or Aaron, Aaron's the high priest, all the priests come through Yochavet. And the kings, Miriam ultimately married the forefather, the ancestor of King David. So the kings come through Miriam, the priests come through Yochavet. As God's responding to them, when we go out on a limb for God, God always repays back far more than we're doing, however much we think we're doing, and sometimes we're doing a lot. God's repayment back is always far more. He's never going to be indebted to us. He's always giving us more than we ever give him. 